Welcome to the History of Christianity podcast with Stephen Bedard. Please visit me at historyofchristianitypodcast.com. As we conclude our look on the second century, I want to return to a theme that has appeared over and over, and that is the role of apologetics. A number of the Christian thinkers we have looked at are identified today as apologists. We're going to take another look at that theme and reflect on why this style of writing emerged at this time. Christians didn't invent apologetics. The Greek word apologia means a defense. It does not mean being sorry. For example, Plato wrote the Apology of Socrates. This did not mean that Socrates was sorry for all the trouble he caused. It was a defense of why Socrates was unjustly sentenced to death. Why would the early Christians need to defend their faith? The answer to that is one of the reasons I'm using this as a century summary. There were numerous things going on that required the Christians to respond. One was their complex relationship to the empire. Christianity began as a sect of Judaism. Judaism at first had a privileged place in Rome in that they were not expected to worship the pagan gods or the emperor. This provided some protection to the Christians, but things began to change. One was the increasing Gentile makeup of the church. The other was the Jewish war from 67 to 70 AD. Christianity was being seen as its own thing, and the Romans were not sure what to make of them. For one, they would not burn the pinch of incense to the emperor. Also, Christianity was not just the adding of beliefs or rituals, but a total transformation that was disrupting society. Christians were seen as disloyal troublemakers with questionable, if not immoral, practices. In addition to this was the philosophical and religious context. There were state religions and mystery religions. People would mix and match, and some of them, at least, had superficial resemblance to Christianity. There were numerous philosophies as well, including what we now call Middle Platonism, as well as Stoicism, Cynicism, Epicureanism, among others. But not all the challenges came from the outside. There were a number of heresies that either came from Christianity or at least had a close connection to it. One of the most influential of them was Gnosticism. All of these factors required the Christians to develop a defense of their beliefs. So who were the apologists? One of the first was Quadratus, who was born in the first century but became an apologist in the early second century. Quadratus was from Athens and he wrote to the Emperor Hadrian, who had visited Athens in 124 to 125 AD. This is what the church historian Eusebius says about this apologist and his work. After Trajan had reigned for 19 and a half years, Elius Adrian became his successor in the empire. To him, Quadratus addressed a discourse containing an apology for our religion because certain wicked men had attempted to trouble the Christians. The work is still in the hands of a great many of the brethren, as also in our own, and furnishes clear proofs of the man's understanding and of his apostolic orthodoxy. He himself reveals the early date at which he lived in the following words, But the works of our Savior were also present, for they were genuine, those that were healed, those that were raised from the dead, who were seen not only when they were healed and when they were raised, but were also always present, and not merely while the Savior was on earth, but also after his death, 
they were alive for quite a while, so that some of them lived even to our day. Such, then, was Quadratus. Contemporary of Quadratus in Athens was Aristides, who also wrote an apology for the Christian faith to Hadrian. While his apology was known from historians such as Eusebius, the actual text was discovered in the 19th century. Here's a part of it. All powerful Caesar, Titus, Hadrianus, Antonius, venerable and merciful, from Marcianus, Aristides, an Athenian philosopher. I, O king, by the grace of God, came into this world, and when I had considered the heaven and the earth and the seas, and had surveyed the sun and the rest of creation, I marveled at the beauty of the world, and I perceived that the world and all that is therein are moved by the power of another, and I understood that he who moves them is God, who is hidden in them, and veiled by them, and it is manifest that that which causes motion is more powerful than that which is moved, but that I should make search concerning the same mover of all as to what is his nature, for it seems to me he is indeed unsearchable in his nature, and that I should argue as to the consistency of his government, so as to grasp it fully. This is a vain effort for me, for it is not possible that a man should fully comprehend it. I say, however, concerning this mover of the world, that he is God of all, who made all things for the sake of mankind. It seems to me that this is reasonable, that one should fear God and should not oppress man. We see in these two apologists an attempt to defend Christianity to the emperor and to the empire. The church was not a threat to the empire and was not something that needed to be opposed. They addressed an emperor who was a lover of Greek thought and used their positions as Athenian thinkers to make that connection. It is along these lines that we see the apologetic activity of Justin Martyr. Justin wrote two apologies. The first addressed to Antonius Pius. It started in this way. To the emperor Titus, Elias, Adrianus, Antonius Pius, Augustus Caesar, and to his son Versimus the philosopher, and to Lucius the philosopher, the natural son of Caesar, and the adopted son of Pius, a lover of learning, and to the sacred senate, with the whole people of the Romans, I, Justin, the son of Priscus, and grandson of Bacchius, natives of Flavia Neapolis in Palestine, present this address and petition on behalf of those of all nations who are unjustly hated and wantonly abused, myself being one of them. His second apology was not addressed to an emperor, but does address the persecution that took place under Urbicus, a Roman prefect. Romans, the things which have recently happened to your city under Urbicus, and the things which are likewise being everywhere unreasonably done by the governors, have compelled me to frame this composition for your sakes, who are men like passions and brethren, though you know it not, and though you be unwilling to acknowledge it on account of your glorying in what you esteem dignities. For everywhere, whoever is corrected by father or neighbor or child or friend or brother or husband or wife, for a fault, for being hard to move, for loving pleasure, and being hard to urge to what is right, except those who have been persuaded that the unjust and the intemperate shall be punished in eternal fire, but that the virtuous and those who lived like Christ shall dwell with God in a state that is free from suffering. We mean those who have become Christians, and the evil demons who hate us, and who keep such men as these subject to themselves, 
in serving them in the capacity of judges, incite them as rulers actuated by evil spirits to put us to death, but that the cause of all that has taken place under Urbicus may become quite plain to you. I will relate what has been done. In addition to defending the rights of Christians to the Romans, Justin was also a philosopher and dressed in the garb of a philosopher. He debated with pagan philosophers. He's also known for his apologetic work, The Dialogue with Trifo. This is presented as a debate between Justin and a Jew named Trifo, where Justin attempts to demonstrate that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. There's some debate as to whether Trifo was a historical figure, but that does not take away from its apologetic value. Tatian is sometimes described also as an apologist. He was a student of Justin. Both Tatian and Justin interacted with their contemporaries in the philosophical world. Tatian also dealt with the differences among the Gospels by harmonizing them in his Diatessaron. For a while, his Diatessaron was more popular even than the individual Gospels. Stay tuned for more apologetic fun after this message. If you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and dodge all that hectic holiday shopping traffic, why not save time and money with Stamps.com? Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discount on UPS and USPS services all year long. It just makes sense, especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays. Whether you're selling online or running an office or a side hustle, Stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays. Access all the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip. And get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Going to the post office instead of Stamps.com is kind of like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Just going up a couple of floors? Sure, take the stairs. Walking up 30 flights a day? You could use a break. If you spend more than a few minutes a week dealing with mail and shipping, Stamps.com is a lifesaver. You'll save so much time and money, you'll wonder why you didn't start sooner. Save time and money this holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with the promo code POD for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code P-O-D. Our next apologist is Melito of Sardis. He returned to the rule of writing an apology to the emperor Marcus Aurelius. Remember that Marcus Aurelius was an emperor and a philosopher. Melito tries to clear up some of the misunderstandings and to demonstrate that Christianity is a worthy philosophy. More well-known was Irenaeus of Lyon, who wrote the influential text Against Heresies. Here, Irenaeus is not just trying to show that Christianity is no threat to the empire, but that certain heresies are a threat to Christianity. Here, Irenaeus targets groups such as the Gnostics. Here's a short segment from Irenaeus. They do not believe that he who is God above all, formed by his word, in his own territory, as he himself pleased, the various and diversified works of creation which exist, inasmuch as he is the former of all things, like a wise architect and a most powerful monarch. But they believe the angels, or some power separate from God, 
and who was ignorant of him, formed this universe. By this course, therefore, not yielding credit to the truth, but wallowing in falsehood, they have lost the bread of true life, and have fallen into vacuity and an abyss of shadow. They are like the dog of Aesop, which dropped the bread and made an attempt at seizing its shadow, thus losing the real food. It's easy to prove from the very words of the Lord that he acknowledges one Father and Creator of the world and Fashioner of man, who is proclaimed by the law and the prophets, while he knows no other, and that this one is really God over all, and that he teaches that adoption of sons pertaining to the Father, which is eternal life, takes place through himself, conferring, as he does, on all the righteous. Another apologist was Theophilus of Antioch. Like Justin's dialogue with Trypho, Theophilus wrote an apology addressed to a person, this time a pagan named Autolycus. The apology to Autolycus addresses numerous concerns about Christianity, and it argues for its truth. We return to Athens to find Athenagoras, who wrote an apology, like Melito, to Marcus Aurelius. Christians were being persecuted, and Athenagoras attempted to argue on philosophical grounds that Christians were not a threat. This is what he wrote. If indeed anyone can convict us of a crime, be it small or great, we do not ask to be excused from punishment, but are prepared to undergo the sharpest and most merciless inflictions. But if the accusation relates merely to our name, and it is undeniable that up to the present time the stories about us rest on nothing better than the common, undiscriminating popular talk, nor has any Christian been convicted of crime. It will devolve on you, illustrious and benevolent and most learned sovereigns, to remove by law this despiteful treatment, so that as throughout the world both individuals and cities partake of your beneficence, we also may feel grateful to you, exulting that we are no longer the victims of false accusation. For it does not comport with your justice, that others, when charged with crime, should not be punished till they are convicted, but that in our case, the name we bear should have more force than the evidence adduced on the trial, when the judges, instead of inquiring whether the person arraigned have committed any crime, vent their insults on the name, as if that were itself a crime. But no name in and by itself is reckoned either good or bad. Names appear bad or good according as the actions underlying them are bad or good. You, however, have yourselves a dear knowledge of this, since you are well instructed in philosophy and all learning. There was also Aegisippus, who wrote against the Gnostics and the Marcionites. His texts are lost to us now, except for a few lines in Eusebius. We don't know the name of the next apologist, only that he was the author of the Epistle to Diognetus, the author sets out his aim very clearly in the opening sentences. Most excellent Diognetus, I can see that you deeply desire to learn how Christians worship their God. You have so carefully and earnestly asked your questions about them. What is it about the God they believe in and the form of religion they observe that lets them look down upon the world and despise death? Why do they reject the Greek gods and the Jewish superstitions alike? What about the affection they all have for each other? And why has this new group and their practices come to life only now and not long ago? I cordially welcome this desire of yours, 
and I implore God, who enables us both to speak and to hear, to grant to me, so to speak, that above all, I may hear you have been edified, and to you, so to hear, that I who speak may have no cause of regret for having done so. Each of these apologists and the texts associated with them give us a glimpse of the church in the second century. Much has changed since the first century and the ministries of Peter and Paul. Christians are now writing to the emperors, taking the time to explain Christianity and debunking myths. While there were false teachings mentioned in the New Testament, there are much more developed heresies by the second century that require a more systematic rebuttal. Apologists are using the tools of philosophy and rhetoric to rationally defend the Christian faith from the dangers they perceive. Christian apologetics will continue into the 3rd century as it continues today. But here we see its early development and the development of the church as a whole. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Christianity podcast. And I'd encourage you to visit me at historyofchristianitypodcast.com. And make sure to support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash hopesreason. Even $1 a month can really help me keep this podcast going. Thank you, and God bless.